Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Mike Haslam, Investment Funds Director, talks to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, about the latest in the impeachment saga, as well as the three lessons he and the team have taken from this year. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. So what are we going to cover uh, this week? Well, we've had a week to pick over the aftermath of the UK general election. It's been a busy week for Prime Minister Boris to work towards getting Brexit done by the end of January. So we'll take a little bit of a look at politics versus the economy in the UK. Uh, we've also got the impeachment saga in the US. And Will, I also want to quiz you about what you've learned from 2019 as well. I look back um, uh, for you and your team. So let's start off with the impeachment saga. This week, for the third time in history, a sitting president has been impeached. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean he is removed from office. We now move on from the House of Representatives to the Senate trial. So, Will, what comes next? And is there anything that you guys in your team are doing to take account of this development in the funds and portfolios? Yeah, Mike, uh, morning. It is a pretty amazing uh, development. There's no doubt about it. But so far, markets have sort of shrugged. Um, now, that may be because markets are taking the view that the Senate, um, which, remember, is Republican controlled, uh, is very unlikely uh, to vote uh, to remove uh, the president from office on current kind of count. Um, uh, but it could also mean that even if in January the Senate does go the whole distance, um, that it's not really a market-moving event. That sounds bizarre, um, but there are plenty of moving parts here. So, f- you know, from an investor perspective, uh, imagine if I took a strong view um, that the president was going to be removed from office. Uh, what investment position would I take and what are the other assumptions I would need to make in order to have the confidence to make that position? So I'd need to make uh, a call on November elections, um, what that would mean there, uh, and indeed have a sense of the kind of congressional clout the White House would enjoy, so how well the Republican Party did um, uh, 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 did in those elections. Um, I would need to understand uh, which of the many talked about policies would float to the top of the priority list. Then I would need to make an assessment of how likely that posi- pol- uh, policy would be to make it through kind of, you know, the uh, the congressional, uh, you know, uh, run the, the gauntlet through uh, uh, through uh, congressional um, opinion um, uh, and that's you know even if we get a Republican sweep there are difficulties there so and so on and so on and so on um, now uh, once I've done all of that very complicated process I've then got to work out whether the market's already there uh, whether uh, maybe after all of that work uh, the crowd has worked out the probabilities quicker and better uh, more accurately than me than I have or, or maybe just the probabilities have moved on in the time while I've been making those very complicated uh, calculations the point is, I think, long-winded point, is that this is not an area where we see ourselves having um, a particular edge. It's extremely complicated. I would even say hazardous to try and um, uh, uh, try and sort of you know go through all of that with any great degree of confidence. So, could the ongoing strength of the U.S. economy play a role? Yeah, I mean, this is an important point. I think um, you know, without trying to establish cause and effect, one, one of our competitors took a look at a load of data points uh, of the U.S. that kind of 
The aim of these data points was uh, go some way to describing the economic well-being of the U.S. electorate and sort of plotting it over time. Now, they took the series back to 1896, and basically they argue that no incumbent president has ever or will have ever had such a broad-based economic tailwind for re-election. Uh, and you look at it, it's amazing. You know, wages are now rising across all income cohorts with the bottom segment rising the fastest. Um, you know, debt servicing costs relative to income are the lowest they've been in 40 years. You've got the highest rate of job vacancies in 20 years the misery index which is something uh, you know an index which describes uh, which tracks kind of unemployment plus inflation that's the lowest it's been in decades and it's actually at record levels uh, low levels when looked at for several kind of subdivisions of the population now it's extremely hard to say how much of this if any is actually down to the president um, much of the economic strength uh, is inherited as we've talked about before but nonetheless this is going to be something that um, you know very much in the minds of the electorate you would have thought and therefore the senators who are now sort of you know uh, judging the impeachment case as it comes to the senate at the beginning of next year so it's complicated got it okay so when, when you're looking wider um have there been any other bits of news that has um, um grabbed your attention I mean, nothing too much this week, to be honest. I mean, no real change to the view that the parts of the world economy that have been stumbling, even staggering for, you know, large parts of this year, now seem to be finding their feet a little bit. So again, that confidence that the next recession is not imminent is just growing a little bit. Um, the year is drawing to an end. Let's take a look back now over 2019. Um, I know that you and your team are always looking for things that you uh, maybe maybe could have done better, lessons to learn, etc. So as you look back over the year, what three things do you think you will take from the year and maybe develop? Yeah, it's an important um, part of the investment process to kind of reflect on you know, lessons learned and what you could have done better and what you, you know what didn't go so well. Uh, and I think, you know, I draw out three um, things uh, as asked. Um, I mean, first, um, I think is really the point, um, you know, the two big stories this year have been these kind of high stakes negotiations between the US um, and uh, China and uh, the UK, you know, in its attempts to exit the EU. Um, and I think the point here would be that high stakes negotiations come with plenty of bombast and posturing, um, but there's actually very little um, that investors should actually listen to or indeed act on. Um, the second one um, that I think is really important for this year is really that growth and capital markets as in the growth that the global economy registers and GDP and those kind of things um, and the returns that capital markets um, return over a particular calendar year or period can seem totally unrelated um, but it's you know this is something we knew anyway but it's a it's a reminder this year was a very pleasant I mean in some ways pleasant the economy was quite weak and the capital markets returns were incredibly strong the final one uh, is a bit of a boring kind of geeky point but it's really that um, you know inventories and stockrooms uh, still matter this is a really important point we can get into it in a little bit but it's it's something to do with kind of how the economy functions overall so coming back on your first point on the um, negotiating front. Does this mean that the Prime Minister's continued insistence that the UK will be leaving the European Union by the end of 2020 should be taken with a pinch of salt? Well, I mean, that's a good question. You know, remember, there is uh, likely to be a difference in how this government talks about exiting the EU without a trade deal in public um, and how it thinks about it in private. Uh, that would not be surprising or indeed, you know, particularly sinister, to be honest. That's uh, uh, probably just a function of um, uh, of where we're at. But we just need to keep in mind that there's always a disconnect uh, between political word and political deed. That's not a comment on kind of mendacious politicians or anything like it. 
Uh, it's simply that the journey from thought and word to action when in power is necessarily complicated. Um, you know, if you think about it on this point, in a sense, we kind of, um, we benefit that to a certain extent. And all countries have different ideas about how much policy they want translated and how quickly into action. But if you think about it from the perspective of a business looking to invest in the economy, mostly when you speak to businesses, they ask for stability and consistency. What they want to be able to do is plan uh, the returns of their investment over multiple governments. So what they tend not to want is big swings in policy direction, tax rates, all those kind of things, you know, ad hoc given ways here and there. They just want to be able to plan. And so in a sense, there is some st the studies that show that um, you know, economic growth is higher, better in those countries uh, with strong institutions, which is part of that story of kind of blunting you know, political word into political deed. Now, also um, here, I think there's another, um, there's another point to make, um, which is that our elected politicians are mostly pretty alive to the potential for uh, economic damage under their relatively fleeting um, watches, um, probably a little bit more than we tend to think. So you mentioned there the UK economy, but me as an investor, I look, I look at the UK stock market. So can there be a big difference between the two? Can one be saying one thing and another another? Very much so. And, and there's loads of reasons for this. Um, you know, governments and regulators can get in the way of that translation from economic growth to kind of corporate profits growth. Uh, you know, valuations can wax and wane, um, you know, unrelated to that economic growth story in some part as well. Uh, you know, margins, corporate margins can rise and fall. And that also can be quite unrelated to the sort of, you know, the level of growth being achieved, although there is obviously some sort of explanatory power there. Um, but also, if you think about it, in the UK's case, sector composition is really important and where you're getting those profits from so you know for the UK we've often said you know about two-thirds of uh, profits for the FTSE comes from elsewhere that tells us relatively little about the nothing to do with the UK economy uh, and you know the FTSE is huge representation for kind of oil and mining stocks it's not like we've long since ceased to be a kind of you know raw, raw commodities or an economy that's dependent on um, you know commodities in that way so as you can see that's just one example the UK is a good example actually of how different it can be between GDP growth and the returns that uh, the domestic corporate sector achieves. And on your final lesson about inventories does that help explain why the economy tends to be much less vol volatile these days than it does maybe several decades ago the old boom and bust cycles we had yeah well i mean much of the kind of violence of those past boom and bust cycles that you referred to uh, can be explained by swings in inventory levels so if you think about it as companies became uh, or become worried about demand and consumers and other uh, from from consumers and other buyers the presence of kind of large quantities of stock they tend to amplify um, the downturns in production. They can create momentum on both ways, if you think about it. Uh, it's sort of like, uh, yeah, it's sort of pendulum swinging, I guess, that sort of gives that economy extra momentum on the upside and the downside. But what you found more recently is like uh, in the last few decades, it's sort of, you know, you've had improved technology and supply chain management techniques have kind of more recently enabled companies to more accurately forecast final demand to start with um, and the changes in that and also manage tighter inventories as kind of supply chains have become more efficient. Now, this means they need to hoard less stock. So cash flows rise and companies uh, tend to be therefore a bit more able to be resilient to the inevitable ebbs and flows of you know final demand uh, and this has helped dampen some of the worst excesses of past you know economic cycles now this effect if you think about it, it's also been magnified um, by changes in consumer behavior and corporate behavior to a certain extent but the consumer one we'll look at here so you know if you think about it there's been a huge surge in kind of leasing of goods that we used to purchase outright from cars to phones to houses 
So, you know, firms have developed expertise in managing the risks of financing and storing these durable goods, pooling this risk, uh, and kind of reducing, again, that exposure to um, the vagaries of, um, uh, of consumer confidence. But I think the point that we've seen this year is that inventories have played a bit of a role it's not it's not as significant but it's a it's an unacknowledged or one of the more unacknowledged sort of points about this year that you've seen an inventory thing that's kind of exacerbated that downturn in in demand that people have been worried about and is this also a reason why recessions have become less frequent as well well there are loads of things that go into that um you know it's something that's been called um by many economists kind of the great moderation this last few decades um uh, certainly kind of inventory management, I think it's probably had more to do with the amplitude of the sort of recessions rather than sort of causing them themselves, although there have been some, um, there, there may be some role in there. Uh, but the change in consumer behavior is probably also important. Um, you know, that move away to from big ticket purchases, you know, it's less of a kind of I have to save up for 10 years to buy this. And then, you know, if I lose my job, then you, you, you can see how the difficulties are more manageable or s smoothable um, as a result of that change in behavior. Monetary policy is also part of the reason. Um, so you've got more independent central banks. And you think about that, that's bank, uh, you know, if you think about politicians elected on a short electoral leash and they come in and they have control of interest rates as well they're going to do their most you know in sort of you know in uh, in just looking at their motivations of course they're naturally going to want to keep interest rates lower than they probably should be over time and that's what we have found and so central bankers independent from the politicians has been helpful um so yeah there's a there's a range of things it's a really interesting subject actually although you may not agree but there is a there is a lot uh, that's uh, that goes into it now recessions are not going to be eradicated altogether we suspect ever uh, they're a necessary part of uh, a necessary evil so to speak um but it is certainly they have been getting less frequent and less severe over time got it let's draw it to a close eh? thank you very much uh, uh will very interesting i totally disagree with everybody that says it's boring to all our listeners please enjoy the festive season we will be back next week for another word on the street all investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance this podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.